It's election season. And just yesterday, in our mail, I got an oversized postcard promoting a particular candidate. At the top of the postcard, it read, worried about the future? And then in big, bold letters, things can get worse. <laughs> Could things get worse? Maybe. But as Christians, is worrying the right response? How should we think about our future in light of what God has said about himself? Uh, the battle of the Christian life is to take the truths of God's word from our heads to our hearts to our hands, to know and believe and apply the word of truth, to live in light of what God has actually said about himself, to walk in faith and not by sight. So when it comes to the future, what has God said about himself? Where do we turn to find comfort and hope in the midst of chaos and uncertainty? Church family, we turn to our unchanging God in his unchanging word. The God who not only knows the future, but the God who holds the future. The God who reigns over all of human history, past, present, and future. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 97. Psalm 97, found on page 499 in your pew Bibles. 499 in your pew Bibles. As is always the case, if you do not have a physical copy of God's Word so that you can read on your own every day of the week, Lord, we, do, we, act, we pray that you would take this Bible with you as a gift from us to you. We want nothing more than for you to be able to read God's Word regularly. But before we read the passage, I want to give us a little bit of context to help us understand this passage better. Psalm 97 is a hymn. It's a hymn exalting in God's kingship over all of creation. The people of God repeatedly rejoice in their just king who reigns over all of the earth, adversaries included. Not only that, but this psalm has hints of, of messianic prophecy as it points forward to God's future reign as seen through the return of Jesus. So with that little bit of context in mind, our passage for this morning, Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your righteousness, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He, pre he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalms like this one are helpful in recalibrating our hearts and minds to what's true about God, despite the fallen and chaotic world that we live in. Psalm 97 is meant to help us to see God for who he truly is, King, 
and the Lord of all. And when we see him for who he truly is, we see ourselves for who we truly are, uh, secure and stable under his eternal rule. Uh, In Hebrew poetry and song, uh, ideas and concepts are repeated in different ways to emphasize a particular idea. Uh, So the point of this psalm is it's pretty clear. The Lord reigns. And as we walk through this psalm, examining this truth that the Lord reigns, I want us to consider how we, uh, the people of God, those who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, how we should respond to his reign. And that response will serve as our main idea for this morning. So if you're taking notes, here's the main idea of this message. The Lord reigns, therefore we should fear him rightly, worship him only, and love him entirely. The Lord reigns, therefore we should fear him rightly, worship him only, and love him entirely. Those three responses to the Lord's reign will serve as our three points for this morning. But as we approach this psalm, I want to give a little bit of instruction on how we're going to walk through it. Uh, In this psalm, we actually have three exhortations, three commands to rejoice in and worship the Lord. We find those in verses 1, 7, and 12. And each of these commands is followed by this this ground, this cause for that praise. Uh, The Lord reigns, praise God, and this is why we should praise God. A command is given, and then the support for that command itself follows. And that's exactly how we're going to approach the text for this morning. So we're going to search for the command and then the reason for that command as we work through So response number one, fear him rightly. Fear him rightly. Verses one to five. The psalm starts off, the Lord reigns. All who are in Christ can respond to that phrase with a hearty amen. Amen? The psalmist begins with a statement of fact. The point of this entire psalm is given to us in the first three words. The psalmist's use of the word reign it immediately draws our minds to the image of a king, but not just any king, a universal king with a universal reign, a king that always has reigned, a king that is currently reigning, and a king that will always reign, a sovereign king who upholds and ordains all things for his glory. Psalm 93, verse 2, your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. Christian, your God reigns. Uh, Does this truth impact the way that you live? How does the Lord's reign change how you think, where you go, how you spend your money, where you spend your time? As Christians, we would do well to dwell early and often on the Lord's reign. The reality that the Lord reigns, the king of all all the earth, is, is orchestrating all things, working all things for the good of his people, and the glory of his name. It's a truth in scripture that is meant to buoy the soul of those who are worried and anxious. Are you worried about our country? Friends, Jesus is king. Are you worried about your finances? Jesus is king. Are you worried about where you'll live, or your future spouse, or your health, or what kind of job you'll get out of college? Friends, Jesus is king. The fact that the Lord reigns means that we can trust that despite whatever we see happening with our finite perspective, we have an infinite God who loves us and only does good to us. 
But we see in the remainder of verse 1, this past, present, and future reign of the Lord, it actually leads to something, uh, the command to praise. All right, this is our first of three commands or, or imperatives throughout Psalm 97. Right? So God is, in our passage, reigning. He's king. Therefore, we do. We respond. We act. So the rest of verse 1, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. The earth and the coastlands, or in some translations, you see the word islands, represents the furthest away places, both physically and spiritually. This rejoicing at the Lord's reign, it's, it's not limited to a particular country or a particular region in the world. But the whole earth, every bit of the earth, is to rejoice at the reign of Yahweh. Why? Well, because the whole earth is his. He made it. And spiritually speaking, this rejoicing is to reach far and wide, even to the Gentiles, right? those furthest from God. Uh, church family, we are evidence of this happening. Right? Think about it. Over 2,000 years ago, a Jewish rabbi who claimed to be God died on a cross and rose from the grave and says that he's going to return again. And we're gathered here and now to worship him because of that truth 2,000 years ago. The Lord's reign has truly gone far and wide to the many coastlands, to the Gentiles. This is why missions exists, right? So that even the farthest in the most remote places would come to rejoice at the reign of the Lord through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The psalmist now gives us this nature imagery to help us understand why the Lord's reign should lead to a right fear of him. Verse 2, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. The clouds and darkness here in this passage are meant to convey the mysterious nature of God's unapproachable majesty, the face of God hidden. He veils his majesty to finite beings. Think Moses on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud. But why the need for the cloud? Exodus 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Uh, these clouds serve as something of a warning of God's unapproachable majesty and holiness. We must fear him rightly. The remainder of verse 2, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. You know, this is another way of saying that, that righteousness and justice, they characterize the Lord's reign. When the, when the Lord appears, uh, the point isn't simply to strike terror in the hearts of people, but to actually right all wrongs and to administer justice, which is what we see happening at the end of time in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is why, as followers of Jesus, uh, when injustice happens to us or around us, uh, we can rest entirely in the promise that vengeance belongs to the Lord. He will repay, and he will repay in a way that no human justice system can accomplish. In his sovereignty, all of God's actions are perfectly consistent with his character of righteousness, justice, and holiness. Verse 3, fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. 
this holy fire is aimed at all of God's enemies. Y'all, this isn't a second or third degree burn we're talking about here. This fire is meant to represent a holiness that devours completely. A fire from which there is no escape. Think Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. A display of God's terrible majesty aimed at his enemies. Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. Adversaries, foes, those who oppose the Lord's righteous reign in any way, shape, or form, the text makes clear, will be consumed by his holy wrath. Therefore, we must fear him rightly. Verse 4, his lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. You know, I think it's safe to say that lightning and fear go hand in hand. Not lightning from the comfort of your warm, dry home, I'm not talking about that, but the trembling that comes from being caught outside in a storm and seeing lightning strike nearby. Uh, The psalmist uses this imagery and tells us that the source of that lightning, the one who sends that lightning, is the Lord. It's the Lord that causes the whole earth to see and tremble. Uh, The lightning is meant to highlight the very visible, you will see with your eyes, the very visible nature of God's power, as well as its nearness. He is not far off. He is very much near. God is both powerful and he is present. Therefore, we should fear him rightly. Verse 5, the mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. In the spring of 2014, I saw the Colorado Rockies for the first time. Having grown up on the East Coast, uh, the mountains that I occasionally saw were basically anthills compared to the Rockies. As I drove around Denver and got out of the car at different uh, destinations, I found myself just kind of stopping and staring in awe, just kind of jaw dropping on the ground. No words. I just couldn't get over how massive these mountains were. Truly majestic. In verse 5, the psalmist draws our attention, our minds, to the most massive, immovable objects that we know, mountains, and tells us they melt like wax before the Lord. Ice melts, right? Wax melts. Butter melts. But the Lord is so strong and so mighty that mountains melt before him. What would take us days or months to climb over or move around, the Lord melts like a candle on a child's birthday cake. Nothing can stand in the way of the Lord's reign. Therefore, we must fear him rightly. Clouds, darkness, fire, lightning, melting mountains, as those who are by nature rebels towards a holy God, these images should grow us in reverence and awe at just how powerful the Lord's reign really is. So much so that it should lead us to rejoicing and being glad. That should pose the question, how can rebels rejoice at the reign of the Lord? Well, they can't. Only rebels made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. Church family, we rejoice at the Lord's reign because as those who have been saved, our fear of him is not one of waiting to be destroyed, but instead a continual and growing awareness 
that his powerful and all-knowing and far-reaching grace extends to us. He is our loving heavenly Father. Exposure to God in his word, it creates this in us. And through the word, he renews us and conforms us to the image of his son, Jesus. But not only should the Lord's reign lead us to right fear, it should also cause us to worship him only. Verses 6 to 9, our second response. The Lord reigns, therefore we should worship him only. Exodus 20, verses 3 to 6. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's not just that God has made us to worship him, but that he has made us to worship him alone. We were created by God and for God. But because of our sin and rebellion, we do not naturally worship God rightly. Left to ourselves, we actually worship any and everything but him. And for us to worship creation instead of creator is to commit treason against the God of highest heaven. But a right view of the Lord's reign, it ought to redirect our worship from worthless things to the only worthy God. Verse 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Verse 7 begins with an indictment on those who worship false gods. The psalmist says they are, to, they are put to shame, and the idols they have, they worship, they are of no worth. In other words, the worship of these idols eventually leads to disappointment. Those who worship them will be let down. They will be confounded, confused. But why? Well, because these idols are creation and not creator. Like we heard last week from Pastor Evgeny, he said, we were created for that which is eternal. These idols are made by human hands and human minds. They cannot satisfy. Psalm 96, verse 5. For all, God, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You know, in 2022... In Charlotte, North Carolina, maybe it's not carved images that we're tempted to serve, but potentially things even more dangerous, less concrete. I've heard idolatry defined as this, anything that we come to rely on for some blessing or help or guidance in the place of a wholehearted reliance on the true and living God. Let me say that again. Definition of idolatry for us. Anything that we come to rely on for some blessing or help or guidance in the place of a wholehearted reliance on the true and living God. The dangerous thing about idols is that like any sin and tactic of Satan, they always overpromise and underdeliver. Comfort, success, marriage, money. Children, sex, power, all gifts from the Lord, but in a fallen world, tempt us to think that they will ultimately satisfy. If I just had more 
stability. If I just had more time, if I just had more appreciation, I mean, you fill it in the blank. Then I'd be happy. Then I'd be content. Then I'd be fulfilled or complete. Uh, but as Pastor Dave often says, you know, sin always hides the price tag. After we've placed our hope in these idols, we will eventually always find that they fall short of meeting our greatest need to be made right with God. You know, if we're honest, we've all been tempted and even attempted to find that hope, that joy, that satisfaction in something other than the Lord. These attempts are forms of worship aimed at the creation instead of the creator and trading the eternal for that which is temporal. And as we see in our passage, all idol worshipers are put to shame because not one can rival the Lord in majesty, holiness, and justice. Praise God for how he exposes our idols. It may hurt. We may want to hold on to them. But in the end, it's for our good when he exposes our idols. Because at the end of the day, it opens our eyes to his matchless glory. OBC family, what are you tempted to worship in addition to or instead of the one true God? If you're unsure of how to answer that question, I would encourage you to look at three things in your life. Your time, your talents, and your treasure. Where do you spend most of your time? By talents, I mean energy. Where do you spend most of your energy? And by treasure, I mean money. If I were to look at your bank statement right now, what would I see in that bank statement? Where is your money going towards? Is it the things of God or the things of man? The psalmist ends in verse 7 with our second imperative, a command to worship him, all you gods. That's lowercase g, gods. When read at face value, this command, it seems a little confusing. Hold on, what's going on here? Idols, false gods being commanded to worship the true God. How does that work? Well, this is where we have to remember what genre that we are in. This is a hymn written, written with poetic imagery. The psalmist poetically entertains and mocks the idea that even if these false gods themselves were real, they too would be commanded to worship the one true and living God. Even they must submit to Yahweh. But because they aren't alive, they can't worship the Lord. It's the Lord's appearance and the Lord's reign that exposes these so-called deities for what they really are, images, worthless idols. Look back with me at verse 6. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. Verse 6, 8, and 9, they serve as the ground, the reason for the command to worship the Lord only in light of his reign. The heavens testify to the Lord's reign, and in so doing, testify against these worthless and false idols. This poetic language, is, it's really just driving home the idea that the heavens, they point to the true and living God and not to these deaf and mute idols. All peoples, just as you see the sky, all peoples will see his glory. The, Lord reigns, the Lord's reign leads to folly and shame for those who do not worship him only. But for those who do worship him in spirit and in truth, it leads to further gladness, further rejoicing, as we see in verse 8. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. Zion and Judah, the daughters of Judah, are metaphors for God's people. 
And as we see in verse 8, they are glad and they rejoice because of the Lord's righteous judgment. Throughout Scripture, we see the Lord judge his enemies in, in a myriad of different ways, both spiritually and physically. Yet our experience, if we're honest, is that the timing of God's judgment against his foes, it doesn't always happen the way that maybe we would expect it or maybe the way that we would want it, which is why this rejoicing as a result of the Lord's judgment, it points to something even greater than earthly judgments that we can see with our eyes. Instead, this imagery of rejoicing, it's meant to point us to the final judgment, the judgment that earthly kings bestow are but a shadow of the judgment from the king of kings. To this world, we as Christians may look foolish. We may suffer and be persecuted for our devotion to Jesus, for how we live, for our allegiance to the true king. Oh, but church family, there is a day coming where we, God's people, will be vindicated. But until that day, we count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Beloved, take heart in light of whatever trials that you are currently facing. There is hope that will help us to endure to the end for the sake of Christ. The mocking, uh, the persecution, the suffering for the name of Christ will be vindicated in part as the Lord judges those who do not worship him alone. Verse 9, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. The Lord is the most high. Uh, the cause for praise and rejoicing that support the command that we saw back in verse 7, to worship the Lord alone, they, they crescendo in praise by announcing the Lord as the most high over all the earth and exalted above all gods. These two phrases... Uh, emphasize the Lord's exalted position as king. All of heaven and earth are his. He has no rivals. He has no equals. That's what, it's meant, that's what it means to be the most high. And therefore, he alone is worthy of our worship. Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Nobody, right? There is no one like our God. He is incomparable. He stands alone. He is judged by no one and yet judging all. He is both his own standard and he is our standard. Therefore, as Christ followers, we rejoice at the Lord's reign because to know Christ is to know the Lord. It's to know Yahweh. It's to know the Most High. Just to read, Isaiah continues in Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, the most high is worthy of our worship alone. The last and final impact of the Lord's reign that we see in Psalm 97 has to do with our affections. So response number three, the Lord reigns, therefore, we love him entirely. The Lord reigns, therefore, we love him entirely. Verses 10 to 12, 
The Lord's reign produces right affections. Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Have you ever thought about how all-encompassing that command is? All your heart, all your soul, all your might. We are commanded by God for our good to love him with all that we are. We are to love him entirely. Not only does the Lord reign over creation and idols, but his reign is personal and individual. His reign affects our affections. The command in this section is found in verse 12. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Now, for those who have been reading carefully, you might think to yourself, hold on, Jonathan. Isn't there a command in verse 10 as well? Yes, there is. But you'll see in a moment, I think you'll see in a moment, verse 10 is a preview of a fuller command in verse 12. What does it look like to love the Lord and hate evil, which is what we see in verse 10 in a moment? It looks like pursuing holiness, which is what the rejoicing and praise are centered around in verse 12. The righteous are those, are the ones who rejoice in the Lord's reign and give thanks to his holy name. Verse 12 can very literally be translated, give thanks to the memory of his holiness. This final verse ends the psalm the same way that the psalm began, with this joyful tone, a command to joyfully praise the Lord. Just a few things to highlight here in verse 12. First, uh, this command, it's for the righteous. This is the fourth time that the word is repeated throughout this psalm. Uh, The righteous are those who are commanded to rejoice and give thanks. Most fundamentally for, second, God's holiness. Those who are in Christ, those who have repented of sin and trusted in Christ for salvation, we ought to rejoice and give thanks for the holiness of God, for his perfection, for his set-apartness. We are to rejoice in the reality that God is without sin. Why? Well, because we, by nature, are with sin. And the wages of sin is death. What we earn, what we deserve for our rebellion against God is not just a physical death, but a spiritual death. To be separated from God's goodness and mercy, enduring his wrath for all of eternity. That is the fate of the unrighteous. Uh, Those who have not submitted to the Lord's rule and reign. Those who persist in their rebellion toward the only wise king. But for the righteous those who by God's grace alone have been made alive by the Spirit and have received the gifts of faith and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, we've been commanded to rejoice because that's the only appropriate response. Church family, we serve the God who is high and lifted up. He's holy and set apart. That fact alone is enough for us to rejoice and give thanks. But the same one who is high and lifted up came down from heaven. He put on flesh. He endured the pain and shame of the cross. Oh, beloved, God became a man to die for sinful man so that sinful men could be with a holy God. This is the gospel. Therefore, we are to love him entirely. 
So if you're here this morning and you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, I want you to take a moment to let that truth sink in. A holy God came to earth as a man. He died on a cross to take away the wrath that you deserve for your rebellion against him. You will never know another love like this. You can be forgiven of your sins against the very one you've sinned against. This is the goodness and grace of the gospel. Repent of your sins and turn to Jesus for salvation today. Now back to verse 10. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. To love the Lord is incompatible with loving what is evil. In every way, shape, and form, those who worship God must side against evil and with the Lord. Love of God and love of evil, you could say, are like oil and water. They just simply do not mix. And as I mentioned earlier, this is what we call pursuing holiness. As we give ourselves to the means of grace that God has provided for us to grow in him, his word, prayer, in the church, we grow more and more in what it looks like to love the Lord and therefore hate that which is evil. So then does your walk with the Lord, does your relationship with the Lord reflect this truth? Does an ever-growing awareness of and love for the Lord cause you to hate the evil and sin you see both around you and within you? Was it, was it Newton who said, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction? Well, the equal and opposite reaction for the love of the Lord is hatred of evil, sanctification, a growing in Christ-likeness. Why should we rejoice at the Lord's reign and give thanks to his holy name? Why should we love him entirely? Well, because the righteousness and holiness that God sees when he looks at us was given to us and is guarded for us. The righteousness and holiness that God sees when he looks at us was given to us and is guarded for us. The second half of verse 10, he preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Can and does the Lord protect our physical lives? Yes. But the psalmist is getting at something even deeper than that. It's the Lord who preserves, protects, and delivers our very souls from the hands of the wicked. The souls of the saints, those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. We are both called and we are both kept by the Lord's grace. We rejoice at the Lord's reign and love him entirely because he both saves and he sustains us until the end. Psalm 145, verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Verse 11, light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Light, an image often used to represent God's presence and God's favor. Uh, this light, the Lord's presence, it shines on the righteous. Those who submit to the reign of the Lord, the, the upright in heart. They will be marked by this joy and gladness despite their earthly circumstances. Friends, we love God not merely for how he blesses us tangibly with things, 
Uh, but we love God because he has blessed us eternally. He purchased us and he preserves us by ransom, ransoming our souls through the finished work of Christ and giving us his Holy Spirit as a down payment. We rejoice the way verse 12 commands us to because our eternity is secure. On February 6th, 1952, Elizabeth II became queen of the United Kingdom. Throughout her reign, she was the queen of 32 sovereign states. As was shown in global news coverage on September 8th, 2022, Queen Elizabeth passed away, making her the longest of any British monarch and the longest verified reign of any female sovereign in history. Her reign lasted for 70 years and 214 days. As beloved as the queen was, whether we're talking about kings or queens, prime ministers or presidents, there is a limit to all who hold power. There is a definitive beginning and there is a definitive end to all who reign on this earth. Which is why, as followers of Jesus Christ, our hope in this life cannot rest on the shoulders of a king or a queen or even a president. Our hope for this life and the next must rely fully and finally on the Lord Jesus Christ, whose reign knows no end. Family, we rejoice at the Lord's reign because Jesus Christ is risen from the grave and in so doing secured our salvation. He has met our greatest need, and in him we have forgiveness of sins. And we are now reconciled to the Lord Most High, the one who causes mountains to melt, the one who puts idols to shame. We are no longer his enemies, but in Christ we have been made his friends. The Lord reigns, therefore he demands our submission. There is not one area of your life that the Lord does not reign over. If you are in Christ, you have been bought with a price and you are not your own. If you are in Christ, you have his grace and you have his mercy. He doesn't just own your Sunday mornings, but your Sunday evenings as well. So come pray with us at 5.30. He doesn't just own your witness at work or your quiet times in the mornings. He owns your recreation. He owns your vacation. He owns your Friday night with friends. Friends, the Lord reigns. He reigns over your circumstances, your feelings, your enemies, your suffering. He reigns over your politics, your kids, your singleness, and your adoption. He reigns over your job, your cancer, your marriage, and the womb. He reigns over hurricanes the planets, the sun, and the nations. Friends, the list could go on. The Lord reigns over heaven and earth, which means we prioritize his kingdom and his people. First, by doing what we're doing right now and gathering on Sunday mornings, the day in which Jesus Christ got up from the grave, but also throughout the whole week. The, Lord, the Lord's reign impacts our discipleship. It causes us to seek not only our own spiritual good, me and Jesus, right? But it actually causes us to seek the spiritual good of those around us, each other. The Lord's reign compels us 
to encourage, exhort, and rebuke as occasion may require. The Lord's reign means that the resurrected Jesus looks at every inch of this world and your life and declares, mine. Church family, the Lord reigns, therefore we should fear him rightly, uh, worship him only, and love him entirely. Let's pray.